We are continuing our trek through the book of Ephesians. We are nearing the end. And if you were here last week, you heard Larry Pombianco talk about spiritual warfare. If you haven't heard Larry's sermon from last week, I highly encourage you to go back to the podcast and listen because uh, his is part one to this message. Mine is, mine is part two. So um, everything you ever wanted to know about spiritual warfare and more is the title. You know, it's one of those titles and it's one of those topics that is difficult for some Christians. Some people don't believe in demons. But I want you to know something. That if you don't, you are in the extremely small minority of people in this world who do and people throughout history who have. It might be kind of a more white, upper class, western civilization kind of a thing, actually. Because if you go to uh, South America, if you go to Africa, if you go to uh, vast parts of Asia and the Middle East, you're going to find people who believe that stuff's all true. And here's the thing. If you're a Christian... You already believe in the supernatural. So it's not that big of a jump. I'm going to start off with a actual C.S. Lewis quote, unlike if you go into our office and see the C.S. Lewis quotes on the wall. There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. And the other is to believe and feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. So there's two equal and opposite errors that we can fall into. One is believing that demons and the supernatural darkness does not exist. And the other is going so far into it that it kind of takes over your life. One of the reasons I frankly don't go to a lot of horror movies, spiritual horror movies, is because I've encountered the real thing. And I don't need to be scared out of my wits when I know that I have victory in Jesus. So I kind of try and walk the middle line between disbelief and overbelief, if that makes any sense to you. When I was a young man, I didn't think much about demons and Satan. Um, I was kind of an agnostic, I think, about all that stuff. I had left my childhood faith behind for the most part. And when I left my childhood faith behind in God and Jesus, I kind of left behind any belief in demons and the devil as well. But then I became a Christian, and and my faith in God was reborn. I still didn't think much about demons, however. That is until one night, about a year or so after my conversion, 
I had uh, been away at school, uh, came back to my hometown university, University of Toledo, and we had some friends uh, of the family who needed a babysitter, and I was kind of old enough to babysit like into the wee hours of the morning. These folks were hearty partiers, and uh, so they said, Mike, watch our kids. Here's a room you can go to sleep in. Uh, we'll be back, you know, three or four in the morning. And so I said, okay, fine. And so I uh, put the kids to bed, set up for quite a long time, and then finally went to, to bed. And uh, I woke up. It must have been, I don't know, 2, 2.30, 3 a.m. You know, the room was pitch black. And I had the most uncomfortable feeling of my life. And the only way I can describe it is, even in the pitch black, blackness, I could kind of sense there was an object, there was a personality that was darker than even the darkness of the room. It was like a black hole that kind of sucked all the light in. I could just sense this presence and it was huge in comparison to me and much more powerful than I was. I was petrified. I had never had this kind of experience before in my entire life. And I had been a Christian long enough to think, oh, well, I wonder if this is some kind of demonic presence. I mean, I'm in a foreign house. I don't know anything about these people much. It's like, holy cow. And so all I could do was just start saying what I had read about in the Scriptures, which was to use the name of Jesus. And I kept saying, in the name of Jesus, get out of here. In the name of Jesus, get out. Get out in the name of Jesus Christ. Get out. In the name of Jesus, get out. Jesus, help me. Jesus, Jesus, in the name of Jesus, get out. I mean, it left. And I, I lie there for a while just wondering what the hell had just happened. That was my, my first encounter with the darkness. The Apostle Paul speaks to Christians caught in this spiritual conflict in this section of Ephesians, as I said before. The closest analogy we have, I think, for what Paul is saying to us is kind of like what a general would say to his troops on the day before a huge battle. And, and all this strengthens Paul's assertion that it's... Uh, it's the Lord who gives us, as believers, the necessary armor in order to fight off our foes. And so we're going to go to Ephesians, and we'll start reading. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, to stand. Stand firm, then, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist with the breastplate of righteousness in its place. 
and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all of this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions, with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert, and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. All right. I want you to remember that Paul is using a metaphor here. For those of you who were falling asleep during English class, I will repeat what I used to say when I was an English teacher in high school. A metaphor is a figure of speech in which a term or a phrase is applied to something to which it is not literally applicable in order to suggest a resemblance. For example, when we say, a mighty fortress is our God, that's a metaphor. We're comparing God to a mighty fortress. Even though God isn't literally a mighty fortress, he is certainly has the characteristics of one, right? That's a metaphor. Now, the uh, most striking, and this is, I'm saying this so you know it's a metaphor, okay? Because the most striking biblical figure of an armored warrior is actually Goliath. And this is actually uh, an illustration of David, the young shepherd boy with a sling, encountering Goliath, the nine-foot-tall, fully-armored Philistine warrior. First Samuel says that uh, Goliath had a bronze helmet on his head, wore a coat of scale armor of bronze. On his legs he wore bronze greaves, and he had a bronze javelin that was slung on his back. So David actually has tried on the king's armor, but it doesn't fit him before this, so he takes it off. It doesn't work for him. All right? So, here's... The idea is that the armor is a device that the Apostle Paul is using to try and get us to think about what it means to be prepared in battle with the evil one. Okay? Don't get hung up on the fact that it's literal armor. It's not literal armor. Okay? But it's really helpful in understanding the way that God prepares us to battle the evil one. I mean, here you have a biblical picture of an unarmored young boy who is clothed nothing in nothing except the power of God defeating a, an armored warrior. In Luke's Gospel, Jesus tells a parable about binding the strong man. A stronger person attacks the strong man, overpowers him, and takes away the armor in which the man trusted and divides up the spoils. Jesus, in that parable, is the stronger one who is defeating Satan and stripping Satan of his armor. So, okay, metaphor. You got it? Metaphore. Just go with it. All right, let's go through this one more time. And we're going to stop along the way. Verses... 
10 through 11 of chapter 6. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Now, back in the day, Roman soldiers were taught to stand their ground and not to retreat. If they stood together on an open, flat surface and did not break their ranks, they were virtually unbeatable. Now, interesting thing is, is Paul says, uh, be strong in the Lord, which is a passive verb. It, it, it's not something you do on your own. It's not like you garnering up your strength. It's actually something that's done to you to be strong. And the idea is it's not just for this moment, but it's continual. It's not a quick fix, but you got a life spent standing your ground. And just so you know, it's this plural. When he says, he's saying, you be strong in the Lord. You plural. That means all of you together. He's not talking about individuals here. He's talking about entire churches together. Kind of like the Roman legions where they came together and they formed ranks and they were impenetrable. Okay? He talks about the schemes of the evil one. Okay. Schemes. Tricky. Cunning. Sneaky stuff that the devil does. Like sometimes the devil comes in a full frontal assault while you're in somebody else's house sleeping in a strange bed. But most of the time, the devil is sneaking around the corner doing guerrilla warfare on us. And we've got to be careful. Demons rarely attack us head on. Here's the deal, is evil doesn't look evil all the time until it's actually accomplished its goal. Evil gains entrance by appearing attractive, desirable, and perfectly legitimate. It's camouflaged. As Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians, Satan masquerades as an angel of light. And here's the deal. The devil has a plethora of schemes. He's got schemes for every situation. Whether you're a rich person, he's got schemes for you. If you're a poor person, he's got schemes that work with poor people. If you're a white person, he's got schemes that work better with white people than they work with brown people. But he's got schemes for brown people that are different than the schemes he has for black people. It doesn't matter. American, Greek, Chinese, woman, man. He's got lots of schemes. He's sneaky. He's underhanded. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Make sure you listen to Larry's sermon from last week. He really went over this well. But here's the point, is we have 
an unseen reality in which to make God's wisdom known. We know that from Ephesians chapter 3, that somehow this life that we're living is in full view of angels and demons. And that somehow God is showing them something through the life that we lead. Now, if you're a pagan, you don't have any choice except to try and appease the forces of darkness. You give them what they want. Sacrifices, devotion, whatever. But Christians can fight against such influences. And this is how we fight. Verse 13. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you've done everything, to stand. Now, just so you know, the day of evil isn't any particular day. It's not the apocalypse or anything. It just means the day when evil shows its ugly head. It's when things are at their worst because of the devil's schemes. Okay, So it's just a regular day of evil. Verse 14. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist with the breastplate of righteousness in place. The Greek here is kind of interesting. It's kind of, actually it's a participle. Having been buckled. It's like it already happened. You don't put on armor during the battle. But beforehand. It's really hard to put armor on when the arrows are arcing toward you. Not enough time. Having been buckled, this is something God does for us in Christ. He, he gets us ready for the battle. As Larry said, this battle happens when you're still in the womb. And he says... Put on this leather sheath that covers your whole body down to the knees. Women, it's kind of like a leather slip, if you can imagine that. Men, is, we'll just say it's a tunic. So when a Roman soldier would get dressed ready for battle, he would put on a leather sheath that would cover down to his knees, okay? And so if arrows came or blows from a sword came, uh, it would actually help deflect the blows. But this thing is upon which all the other armor was placed. It was the foundation. And Paul is saying this is truth. Aletheia is said to be the soldier's belt. It's to be interpreted, I think, as the truth of the gospel. Truth in the inward parts. It's what we're given when we come to Christ. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, it says in Colossians 3. That it should be instinctual, that truth is in you, that you should want truth. And that's what God gives to us when He comes to us. We want the truth. We don't want lies anymore. Beforehand, we're content with being deluded by the lies of people around us and the world around us and the devil. We're okay with that. But once you come to Christ... Lies don't cut it anymore. You want the truth. And that's a gift that God has given you as the foundation for your armor. 
to trust in the truth that God loves you, that is so foundational. To trust in the truth that God loves you even when your life goes to shit, that's foundational. The breastplate covered the thorax from the neck to the thighs. It was, you know, a breastplate. You've seen those before. Guys wearing one there in the little illustration. In Isaiah 59, we are told that God himself, Yahweh, puts on a righteousness like a breastplate. It stands for uprightness, integrity of of character. That's what it means. This is a direct result of Christ's righteousness. We're told that when we come to Christ in some kind of great divine exchange, Jesus gives us His righteousness in exchange for our sinfulness. We're given the righteousness, the right standing with God that only comes with Jesus. And Jesus suffered the consequences of all of our sin on the cross. That's what we're taught. And so this righteousness really comes not from our own good deeds, but from what Christ has done. Go to verse 15. And with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. This is adapted from Isaiah also. Paul was kind of making a a jump in his mind from Isaiah 52.7 in which he describes the messenger of the good news, how lovely on the mountains are the feet of him or her who brings good news. This is a little bit harder to understand. What's it mean? I mean, literally, the Greek reads, and having shod yourselves as to the feet of in readiness of the gospel of peace, and having shod yourselves as to the feet in readiness of the gospel of peace. In other words, there's some kind of preparation that goes on here. I mean, you can know what what feet do, what, what good shoes do for feet. They help you get firm footing, right? In a battle, you don't want to be slipping around. And being in Christ gives you a firm foundation. Your feet don't slip. It allows you to move forward without stumbling. And as you move forward, you bring with you the gospel of peace. As Christians, we are called to bring the gospel of peace to all those we come in contact with as we walk through life. We're prepared to give an answer for the hope that lies within us. You talk to somebody at work. Why are you you're going to church? You're you're a Christian, really? I know there's people here. One right standing sitting in front of me. People in the academic world cannot understand that Amanda Mizey is a believer in Christ. They don't get it. It's not very common, right? So Amanda has to come in prepared with the gospel of peace whenever she goes to school, whether it's with students or fellow faculty.
Verse 16. In addition, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. And this is an interesting little line. This wasn't the small little tiny shield. This was the shield that goes like from your chin all the way down to your feet. That large rectangular Roman legion shield. And what they would do is, it was made out of wood, two layers of wood, uh, and then banded with metal. But what they would do is they would take the front of it and they would put hide from animals on the front. And before a battle, they would soak that hide in water. Because the enemy very often would use arrows dipped in pitch and lit on fire. And when the arrows would hit the shields of the Roman legion lined up in their formations, they would go out because the shield was wet and dipped in water. Interesting little historical thing. After the siege of Dyrrachium, a soldier named Sceva wrote that he counted no less than 220 darts sticking into his shield. Is that amazing? Not just one soldier. The fiery darts that Paul's thinking of include anything from a direct occult attack and devilish persecution to temptations. Temptations to bitterness, temptations to anger, temptations to fear, and any kind of division that could break up the ranks of the early church. Those darts, he said, are to be encountered with faith. And faith, as we know, is the assurance of things not seen. I remember as a young Christian uh, going to uh, college, and they had this Bible as literature class, which I thought I should take. Old Testament thing. I thought, oh, well, I haven't read the Old Testament much. Well, I didn't know that the professor kind of hated Christians and was out to destroy the faith of every Christian who came into his class of freshmen and sophomores. And so I go to my first class, and the guy does a number on me. I mean, I came out of that class. I didn't, I didn't know if I was right anymore. Like, what if I have been deluded? What if, what if there is no God? What? I was so just, I mean, I remember walking in front of University Hall, looking at the sidewalk, and just saying a prayer, Lord Jesus, I, I don't even know if I believe in you right now. Could you help me, please? And i got to tell you that it was within just a couple of steps that I, my soul just went, it's going to be okay. Don't worry about it. I'm still here. You see, there's something about faith, the assurance of things that are unseen that puts out the fiery darts, even the doubts that come from the evil one. It's amazing, frankly. I mean, how stupid is it to pray to a God you're not even sure is there? But I had like that much faith. 
And that much faith is good enough to put out that fiery dart. Thank you, Jesus. Let's go to verse 17. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Now, just so you know, this is both about the present and the future. And the Spirit is the one that empowers the sword, which throughout Scripture is known as the the Word of God. And this refers to the gospel message. The Greek word here is rhema, which is a little different than logos. Rhema is the applied Word of God. Okay, so it's not just, you know, quote a Scripture verse out of context and somehow this is going to help you at that particular point. The helmet of salvation. It's when the Scriptures are applied to your life. We're finding spiritual powers here not human enemies. This is not a sword to be used against the people who are coming and causing you doubts. I mean, I don't think God wanted me to attack my college professor with a sword, either real or imagined. All right? My professor is not my enemy. The people who come to you and persecute you for being your Christians, the people who come to you and try and get you to doubt what you believe, are not your enemies. They're they're not your enemies. Even if they were, you're supposed to love them. But what Paul is saying is your enemies are the spiritual forces behind what is being said to you. Jesus used the words of Scripture, the Word of God, in His battle with the devil and His great temptation in the wilderness. And so, we're supposed to do the same thing. We're supposed to use the applied Word. Every time the devil came to Him with a different temptation, Jesus applied a different Scripture from Deuteronomy or wherever to that situation. This is why it's so important to have the Word of God in your heart. To memorize Scripture. I hope you try to memorize Scripture any way you can. At least read it over and over again until you get the sense of it. And it's part of you. Let's go to verse 18 through 20. And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Okay, that's just 18. I'll read you 19 and 20. Pray also for me, that whenever I open my mouth, words may be given me, so I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I'm an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. And so... Paul kind of ends this section about spiritual armor with this request for people to pray for each other and also to pray for him. I mean, prayer is not another piece of armor. 
He's not extending the metaphor that much. He's saying somehow prayer kind of holds this whole thing together. Roman soldier by himself was vulnerable, but a Roman soldier inside the context of his legion was unconquerable. Praying in the Spirit here does not mean speaking in tongues. Just thought I'd bring that up for those of you who think that's what that means. It's rather a connection to other passages on the Spirit in Ephesians, especially like 3.16, Ephesians 3.16, may the Spirit strengthen you, may God strengthen you through His Spirit in your inner being, and Ephesians 5.18, to be filled with the Spirit on all occasions, suggests that uh, you should be in constant preparation for battle on all occasions. And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. I like that illustration because the guy's praying. He has no idea what his prayers are accomplishing, but it looks like the artist has given us a peek. That something is going on in the spiritual realms. This is kind of important on that day of evil, whenever that day occurs. Here's a summary of the armor of God you got the belt of truth the breastplate of righteousness, the feet shod with the gospel of peace, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and all held together by prayer. I mean, frankly, I know people who pray this in the morning when they get up. They, they picture themselves putting on this armor every morning. That's not a bad practice. All right? I know it's metaphor, but it's not a bad practice. Because here, this is the bottom line. The bottom line is, is that who is the way, the truth, and the life? Jesus, the belt. Right? Who is our righteousness? Jesus. Who is the Prince of Peace? Who gives us the peace that passes all understanding? The shoes. Jesus. Who is our faith in? In whom is our faith? Jesus. In whom is our salvation? Jesus. Who is the Word of God? Who wields the sword of the Spirit? Jesus. You see, you're putting on Jesus. That's the point. And if you want to go through this metaphor... On a daily basis, you go right ahead. But I'll tell you something. If you're in the middle of a battle, you know you're in the middle of a battle, you go right ahead. And you imagine yourself putting those things on. Because you're putting on Jesus. Here's a quote from somewhere around 400 A.D. In ordinary battles... The generals do not arm women or children or the aged. But our general, Christ the Lord, distributes this royally, armory, this royal armory to all alike. He then teaches them the stratagems of the devil. 
So this is for everybody. Men, women, children, old, young, doesn't matter. So I like this illustration right here, ladies. There you go. The woman warrior from Ephesians 6. Other than her shield being a little bit small, it's kind of fun. You're all in a battle. As Larry said, you've been in a battle since the moment of your conception. And Jesus is your armor. I'm going to tell you a story uh, that happened at SCUM back in our church in the city day. So it must have been 2006, 2007. I don't remember exactly. I was on my way to church. I got a call from Jesse. He says, Mike, where are you? I said, I'm going to meet with Chauncey before church. He says, could you reschedule that and come straight away uh, to church in the city? Because there's something going on here in the foyer. And I said, what? He goes, well, might be demonic. There's, there's a girl that she's shaken and um, people were praying for. And I said, well, did you call 911? And he said, no. I said, well, why don't you call 911 and then I'll be there soon. I got there. Um, I walk in the foyer and um, I see Bob Till. Now, Bob Till is a lifelong missionary with Greater European Mission And, you know, I walked in that foyer, and there was just an atmosphere of weirdness, darkness. And I immediately sensed something stranger was going on than just an epileptic seizure. And so I go up to Bob. I go, Bob, this is spiritual, isn't it? And he doesn't say a word. He just nods his head. I go, oh. And so there's a group of young scum people in a semicircle around this woman who's sitting with her back to the windows, and she's, like, shaking and moaning, and they're all praying any way they can, some in tongues. Leonor's just sitting right next to her on a chair, quiet, head down, hands folded, you know. Um, anyway, I see this girl shaking, and I get filled with this with this righteous anger, like how dare the demons do this to her? It was the weirdest feeling. Like, I got pissed. And so I was across the foyer and I said in a loud voice, I'll never forget this, I said, in the name of Jesus, stop shaking her. And the girl goes like stock still, like immediately. And slowly her head turns And her face looks at mine, but it's like all the lights are on and nobody's home. Meanwhile, (laughs) all the young people who were praying, like, back away. (laughs) And so then I walk over, and I start saying to her, in the name of Jesus, demon, you come out of this woman. No answer. I say it again. In the name of Jesus, you come out of this woman. All of a sudden, I hear this low, guttural response. No, she's mine. Go on. Got a stubborn one. I said again, in the name of Jesus, you have to come out. 
And by the blood of Christ, I command you to leave this woman. No. I'm going. Inside, I'm thinking, oh, crap. This is going to take a while. Uh, At that point, I know Jesus is going to win. No doubt in my mind. I'm just worried about how long that's going to take because people are going to come in for church. Like Dave was already coming in. He kind of just noticed a bunch of people standing around this woman and just kind of kept going because he had to get ready for worship. He found out later there was a deliverance session going on. So we're going back and forth. Pretty soon, you know, the young folks come back around. We all start praying, and I'm commanding this, come out of her in Jesus' name. No, come out. No. I'm going, okay, well, whatever. I'm staying here until this demon's gone. Then finally, Leonor, who had been totally silent, speaks up. And she says, she starts praying for the little girl trapped inside of this woman's body, held prisoner by this demon. And the strangest thing happened. This girl is like rigid in this chair, groaning. And as soon as Leonor starts praying for the little girl inside, she slides like a hot stick of butter off the chair onto the floor and starts weeping. And I'm going, huh. Well, way to go, Leonor. That was awesome. And so I told Leonor and another older woman, I said, why don't you take her, go back into a room, you know, somewhere out of the foyer, and pray with her. Make sure she accepts Jesus and fill with the Holy Spirit because we don't want this demon coming back. Thank God it was before anybody else got there. We went upon our merry ways. They pray with her. Never saw this girl and her fiancé again. There's more to the story we found out later, but still, that's what happened. Now, I don't know what Leonor was doing much. I asked her about it later. She says she knew that things weren't right between her and God, and she had to get some things straightened out. And I'm thinking, huh, you're putting on the breastplate of righteousness, weren't you? You're putting on the helmet of salvation and the shoes of peace and the belt of truth and the shield of faith. You were getting ready with God first before you entered the fight. Like, that's what we got to do. But spiritual warfare primarily happens not in those kind of face-to-face encounters, but in the small, everyday skirmishes that we overlook and for which we're unprepared. And here's the deal. The more you share the gospel, the more you decide to be an outpost on the perimeter of God's kingdom, the more you're going to get in trouble with the evil one and his minions. Remember that the devil always uses his schemes. Sometimes we get injured by a thousand cuts, not by a thrust to the abdomen. Satan's goal is to convince you that you cannot do what God is calling you to do. As Thomas Brooks said, In the 1600s, Satan doesn't leave fang marks on your flesh. 
He tends to leave lies in your heart. The devil uses guerrilla warfare. The battlefield is between your ears, folks. Very often, for the most part. Lies in your heart. Already, what he wants to leave. In spiritual battle, what are the lies that Satan tempts us with? Well, first of all, I think if you could divide them into a couple categories, the first category is too high a view of ourselves. In other words, the devil is going to get you proud, going to get you arrogant, going to get you thinking you're fine, everything's fine, you're doing good. And he's going to hide God's holiness from you. He's going to let you think that you're okay, just the way you are. You see, the truth is that we're sinners. You want to put on that belt of truth, that sheath, that under armor of truth? You've got to know that you're a sinner. And you've got to know that Christ is your Savior. You've got to know those two things. And if you forget that you're a sinner, Satan is using his wiles to get to you. He hides God's holiness from you. You think you'll be okay. Ah, I can sin here. It's okay. God will forgive me. You don't know that you're going to want to repent. Do you? You forget the holiness of God. I can treat this person like crap. I can let him have a taste of their own medicine. I can be impatient with that person. I can be unkind with that person. I can gossip about that person. I can have sex with that person. God will forgive me. You see, you're kind of just not thinking about the holiness of God at that moment. Satan is hiding that from you. Now the opposite is too low a view of ourselves. The devil hides God's love from you. I'm a worm. God could never love me. I've messed up too many times. I haven't studied my Bible enough. I haven't prayed enough. I haven't gone to church enough. I'm not giving enough to the church. I'm just a scumbag. There's no way that God could love me. Which is why we named our church Scum of the Earth. Because God loves us. Scum of the Earth. You have too low a view of yourself because the devil is hiding God's love from you. And this is a spiritual battle. This is one of those skirmishes. This happens way more often than the head-on encounters. So, doesn't this sound crazy? When these little skirmishes happen, turn it into a moment of praise. 
The devil comes up to you and says, you're not good enough. You're going to go, this is what you're going to do. You're going to tell him the truth. You're going to say, you're right. I'm not good enough. But Jesus loves me anyway. That's the point. Is that Jesus came and died for me when I was his enemy. Jesus loves the lowly. And those mess-ups... He's full of mercy and grace for those of us who screw up on a continual basis. That's the truth, right? You're putting on Jesus. Comes to you and He starts to hide God's holiness from you. You think you're doing okay. You just got to stop and check yourself. Right? Wait a minute. Um, I can't forget where I've come from. I can't. There, there are so many sins that I have committed that Jesus has forgiven me of that I'm not even aware of. You know what? I'm no better than that person. When you bring the full armor of God into these kind of situations, let me tell you, I'm going to use another metaphor. It's like bringing a gun to a knife fight. You're bringing the power of Jesus Christ, the resurrected one, into a spiritual battle, and you are going to be victorious because the name of Jesus always wins. Always. I don't care if you're locked in a prison for being a Christian and tortured and beheaded like the Apostle Paul was. You win. It doesn't matter. You don't need to go down in flames. The Word of God always wins. We're going to remember what Jesus did. Because remember, Jesus did this all before us. He was in the battle with the devil. It looked like the devil won. But He didn't. He was soundly defeated at the cross. And when we take communion, when we break the bread and eat it, we remember that Jesus was victorious even unto death. When we drink the cup, the blood of the new covenant, the forgiveness of our sins, we remember that Jesus died so that we could be with Him forever and the devil would not win finally. So pray with me now and get ready to take communion. Remember what God has done with us. Lord Jesus, I want to thank you for what you have done for us and the example that you have set. Help us remember the victory you have won as we partake of the bread and the cup. In your name we pray. Amen.